Hey there, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Kenzie, bringing you another episode this week. On this episode of Crimeaholics, we actually got this case suggestion from one of our favorite podcasters named Christy Warren. Christy Warren is a host for her show, Firefighter Deconstructed. I highly recommend you guys to check out Christy's show. What she is doing is absolutely amazing, giving a voice to those who have struggled or are struggling with PTSD. Holly and I absolutely fell in love with who Christy is and the work that she does on her show. It is so important to be able to have shows like Christy's to let people know that they are not alone. I highly recommend everyone to go check out Firefighter Deconstructed and share it with your friends because again, the work that she is doing is so important. You can find Christy's podcast, Firefighter Deconstructed, on all major podcast platforms. A few weeks ago, Christy had reached out and she said that she had a case that she was wondering if we would go ahead and work on. She said this case meant a lot to people inside of her personal life, and I was absolutely stoked to be able to do this for her. She gave me the name of the victim, and as I was Googling her and sifting through court documents, I realized this was a case that was not going to be easy to cover for the fact that it is an extremely gruesome case. This is one of those cases that I had to take time and step away from because it did affect me in such a different way. However, when I get affected like this by a case, I firmly believe that These are the kinds of cases that we have to talk about because the victim cannot be forgotten. So on this episode of Cremaholics, I will be bringing you the murder of Deborah Sammons. Before I get started on the case of Deborah Sammons, I want to go ahead and give a little bit of a trigger warning and let you guys know that this case does talk about sexual assault. So if you are sensitive to topics about sexual assault, I highly recommend not listening to this episode. According to court documents, sometime around 12 a.m. on October 26, 1995 in the state of California, two officers found the body of Deborah Sammons inside the trunk of a car that was left on a road called Grizzly Island in Solano County, California. The way that the officers came upon the car was because a man who went out fishing on Grizzly Island Road had previously seen this white car driving at an extremely high speed. When he came upon it right before he notified the police, The car was abandoned on Grizzly Island and the car was still running and it still had its lights on, but there was nobody around the car at all. When the police arrived, they started searching the car and that is when they found the body of Deborah in the trunk of the car. Right away, the police obviously run the license plate number on the car and it ends up coming back registered to Deborah Sammons and her husband, Charlie Sammons. So at this point, police obviously know the first place to go and that is right to her husband. Before I go any further into what happened when the police arrived at Charlie's home, I want to give a little bit of a background about Deborah and Charlie's marriage. According to the court documents, Deborah Sammons had actually left her husband Charlie and started a relationship with a man named Bill Punigate. 
The relationship between Deborah and Bill had actually started while she was still living with Charlie, but at this point she had already had plans to divorce him because he is just a bad guy. In the summer of 1995, just a few months prior to Deborah's murder, Charlie and Bill had actually gotten into a physical altercation when Charlie had found out about the relationship. Her husband Charlie is just a psychotic nutjob. On the day of Deborah's murder, her and Bill had plans to go shopping together sometime that day. However, Deborah ends up calling Bill and says that Charlie had asked her to come to their house in order to help him take care of some of their bills. And she ends up telling Bill she's not going to be able to go with them, but she will be back at his home later that day. Deborah's time card from her work showed that she had left her place of work at 5.28 p.m. and she went straight over to Charlie's house. Around midnight when Deborah had still not shown up to Bill's, he decided he was going to go ahead and go over to Charlie's house to look for her because he knew how crazy Charlie was and was extremely worried for her safety. According to Bill, when he arrived at Charlie's home, he stated that when Charlie answered the door, Charlie had looked freshly showered. For unknown reasons, Bill made a phone call and then he left. And according to the court documents, the two of them never even discussed Deborah's whereabouts. Around 6 a.m. on October 27th, so just hours after Deborah's body was found, the Solano County Sheriff's went to the Salmon's home to notify Charlie that his wife had been found murdered and her body was found in the trunk of her car and that her car was left abandoned. The officer stated that once they arrived at Charlie's home and told them that they had found his wife murdered and that she was found in the trunk of her car, he was thoroughly shocked. And obviously this is a total normal reaction for a husband who just found out that his wife is murdered. But what ends up really shocking the officers is that Charlie's shocked reaction only lasted for about a minute and then he just went back to cooking his breakfast like what the hell yes i know people react differently in situations but you were just told that your wife was found murdered and you're just going to go back and cook your breakfast at this point he isn't even pretending as if he cares and because of his complete lack of reaction to the news the police end up questioning him further and they just flat out ask are you involved with her death and his answer was not quite. Like, what do you mean, not quite? Like, what the hell? The police right away asked Charlie if they could search his home, and he completely agreed to it. So while they were searching in his home, they noticed what appeared to be a few drops of blood on the washing machine inside their garage. It was tested with chemicals, and it did in fact come back that it was human blood splatter. Given that the police just found human blood splatter inside the home, they asked Charlie to come down to the police station for further questioning, and he was just not reluctant at all, and he completely agreed to go with them. And get this, as they were getting ready to leave, Charlie went to put on a pair of his tennis shoes, which also had blood stains all over them. The police officers obviously took the shoes from Charlie, and once they were tested in the lab, the blood came back belonging to Deborah. Her husband is just blowing my mind at this point because it's really as if he does not care, he does not show remorse, and it's not even like he's trying to cover anything up. It's literally as if he has this cocky attitude like, yep, I did it, I murdered my wife. It is completely obvious at this point that 
Charlie is the one responsible for Deborah's murder. So while he's at the police station, he ends up giving a complete breakdown of what happened to Deborah on the night of the 26th. Charlie tells law enforcement that he was actually not the only person who took part in Deborah's murder. He tells law enforcement that the person that helped kill Deborah was a man named Robert Bacon, and he had met this man through Deborah's daughter, and that this man had helped him paint their home about three days prior to Deborah's murder. Keep in mind that Deborah had moved out of their home one month prior to her murder into Bill's home, so this man had never laid eyes on Deborah prior to her murder. Charlie told law enforcement that while him and Robert were painting his home, he had told him that Deborah left him due to sexual issues and that she no longer wanted to have sex with him, and he just wanted her out of the picture. Charlie says, then Robert turns to him and says, I can get rid of her for a price. Which Charlie says to law enforcement, I really honestly thought it was a joke because he was laughing when he said it. According to Charlie, on the night of Deborah's murder, she came to his home around 6 p.m. Charlie stated that it was common for Deborah to come over to the home and help pay the bills after she had moved out. He says that she stayed for several hours getting everything paid and that when she was done, she went to go into their bedroom to put away the receipts. Charlie knew that Robert was in their room hiding at the time, but he states that Deborah went into the room and she let out this light shriek, but he waited for a few minutes and then ends up calling out her name, and when he did not get a response is when he then decided to go into their room and check on her. He is literally acting to law enforcement like he did not know that Robert was in their room. When he goes into their bedroom, he says that he saw Robert severely beating Deborah. And then as he was in there, he ends up grabbing Deborah by her neck and was choking her. Charlie states that Deborah was severely bleeding from the side of her head. And this poor woman was begging Charlie to help her just begging him to save her life. And Charlie says he just turned to the man and asked him what he was doing. And then he states that the man pointed a gun at Charlie and told him to go back into the kitchen. This is all so strange to me because Charlie is literally acting to law enforcement as if he had no idea that Robert was in their home. And not to mention for the fact that Deborah was begging and pleading for Charlie to help her and he just did not help her. Charlie further tells police that when he went back into the kitchen, he grabs the phone to call police. But the man yelled at him and said, I told you not to try anything. And then he says that it was as if the man knew every single thing he was doing. So he was too scared to leave their home and go get help. Charlie told police that, after about five minutes, he decided to return into the bedroom where he saw Deborah laying at the end of the bed extremely bloody. And at this point, he was not aware if Deborah was alive or not. Charlie did state that he did see either her bra or her pantyhose laying at the end of the bed. He told police that Robert yelled at him and told him to go back into the kitchen. And he did exactly what Robert told him to do. Charlie says that just after a few minutes of being in the kitchen, Robert ends up yelling for him to come back into the bedroom. He says when he enters the bedroom, Deborah at this time was laying on the bed completely clothed and was no longer alive. 
He stated that Robert told him to help wrap Deborah's body into a tarp and place her into the car. And Charlie said he did just that. He stated that Robert told Charlie to come up with a place where they could put her and her car. But he was hesitant because he said he was feeling guilty. But he says that Robert ends up pointing a gun at him so he quickly tried to come up with a place to go. And that is when he came up with Grizzly Island because he was a little familiar with the area where he had towed cars from and he said that there would not be a lot of people around. According to the court documents, Charlie stated that he showed the man the way to Grizzly Island and they ended up taking two separate cars. So that way then they could leave the area really quickly. Once they got there, Charlie stated that they were going to try and submerge the car but were unsuccessful. But they did manage to drive Deborah's car off the side of a bridge towards the water. After they drove her car off the side of the bridge, the two of them got into the other car and Robert said, let's go and I will clean up the mess. After Charlie told the police exactly what happened, they went and arrested Robert Bacon and brought him in for questioning and he gave his version of what happened. In the court documents, I found this statement that Robert gave to the police and they wrote it up. So I am going to read that statement that they wrote word for word. The defendant stated he saw Deborah arrive and was immediately attracted to her. He overheard Deborah and Charlie in the kitchen discussing their separation. Deborah told Charlie she did not want the house, but she also did not want other women living there because they would take things that belonged to her. Charlie then went into the garage, which the defendant took as his opportunity to check her out. The defendant stated that after a conversation that lasted only about five minutes, the next thing he knows, him and Deborah began to have sex. Charlie did not interrupt them, and after they had finished engaging in sex, which took no more than 15 minutes, defendant went back outside to continue painting their home. About 15 minutes later... Charlie yelled for defendant to come inside. Charlie had blood on his hands, his shirt, and defendant knew exactly what happened. Defendant went to the bedroom and saw Deborah's body laying on the bed. Based on his prior conversations with Charlie, defendant assumed Charlie had killed her because they were separating and she was going to take everything. Charlie told defendant that if he did not help him move the body, Charlie would call defendant's father and tell him that defendant had just killed Deborah. Defendant and Charlie then moved body onto a tarp. Defendant got Deborah's blood on his shoes when he stepped on the tarp. Charlie tossed something into the fireplace, which might have been rags or a blanket or a sheet. Defendant eventually admitted that he helped Charlie to burn Deborah's underwear and to clean the bloody sheets. They put the body in the trunk of the red car, which Charlie drove. Defendant followed in the white car. At some point, they stopped. Charlie switched the body into the white car and defendant tried to drive the car into the water, but it got stuck on a big dirt hump. After this, Charlie drove the defendant back to his home. At some point while at Charlie's home, the defendant washed his clothes in the washing machine, which is how the blood ended up onto the washing machine. So if you compare the two statements given by Charlie and Robert... It is extremely clear they know exactly what happened to Deborah and what they did, but they are blaming each other for what happened. 
After Robert ends up giving his statement to the detective, the detective left the room, but he decides to go ahead and leave the video camera still recording. And Robert's just like a nut job, obviously, to begin with, but the detective stated that on the video, he sees Robert just getting into this heated argument with himself and he's cussing and he's yelling and he's mad and he's just really pissed that Charlie tried to pin everything on him. On October 28th, the day after Charlie was arrested, the sheriff's department ended up getting a warrant to go ahead and search his home. They found so much to be able to charge Charlie with her murder. In the master bedroom, they found numerous traces of blood, including a smear on the bed frame, a drop inside the dresser cabinet, a smear on the dresser, and small stains on the closet door. And inside the living room, they found small blood stains on the brickwork in front of the fireplace. And inside the fireplace, they discovered burnt fabric in the underwire and clasps of her bra. And in the kitchen, they ended up finding a single-edged wooded handle steak knife inside the dishwasher. Along with finding what was found during that search, I also did find the complete autopsy inside the court documents, but I'm going to give a small overview of what the autopsy said. But before I go any further, I want to go ahead and give a bit of a disclaimer that this autopsy does talk about sexual assault. So if you are sensitive to topics about sexual assault, I encourage you to fast forward through the next bit. The victim's body was clad in a floral print dress, a short sleeve blouse, and a half slip, but no other underclothing. It bore three types of injuries, strangulation, blunt force, and sharp force. The strangulation injuries consisted of multiple ligature furrows on the neck and hemorrhaging of the eyes. The blood force injuries included a broken nose and lacerations on the eyebrow and the bridge of the nose. On the face, there was a rectangular bruising pattern, and according to the trial testimony of Dr. Brian Lee Peterson, who was a pathologist who performed the autopsy, stated that this matched very nicely with the general width and shape of the tire iron that had been found in the defendant's apartment. The shape force injuries included two stab wounds to the face and two stab wounds to the left side of the chest one of which went through the lung and into the abdomen, and the other of which penetrated the heart, injuring the ventricle. According to Dr. Peterson, the steak knife that was found in the dishwasher at Charlie Salmon's house could have very well been the weapon to inflict all of the stab wounds. Elizabeth Ann Casinos, a sexual assault nurse examiner, performed a coloscopic examination of the genital and anal areas of the victim's body. Casinos discovered an abrasion or slight tear at the edge of the vaginal opening. This type of injury could be consistent with consensual sexual relations. The victim's anal cavity exhibited more trauma than the vaginal area. Past the sphincter, the anal cavity was purple and bruised looking on the right-hand side, which is consistent with blunt force trauma to the rectum caused by something being forced from the outside. Casinos did not offer an opinion as to whether the condition of the victim's genital and anal areas were the result of consensual or non-consensual sexual relations. When I cover cases like this, it is really hard for me to make the decision whether or not I should go over the autopsy. And I know some of our listeners like to know all the details, but it's really hard for me to make the decision to do so 
just because that's not how I want the victim to be remembered. But in this case, I felt like I needed to go over the autopsy in order for everyone to understand how horribly demented her husband Charlie and this man Robert was. Thankfully, Charlie Sammons and Robert Bacon were both charged with the rape and murder of Deborah Sammons. Charlie was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, but because he is such a sick, demented, twisted piece of shit, he ends up getting the audacity to try and get paroled because according to him, he served enough of his 25 years to life in prison sentence. But thankfully, his parole was denied and Deborah's family says they would love to see this man die in prison. Not only did I want to cover this case because it hits close to home for Christy and we wanted to be able to do this for her, I really wanted to go ahead and cover this case as well because all of Charlie's actions fall so similar to other domestic violence cases that we have covered. Deborah got the courage to leave this man and not long after she got the courage to leave him, he got so enraged that he murdered her. And not only did he murder her, but he hired someone to help murder his wife and allowed this man to rape his wife. It breaks my heart that Deborah went through what she did and now her loved ones are left every single day having to miss her. But I am so thankful that law enforcement was able to get this resolved so quickly and get arrests made. If you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join our Crimeaholics podcast discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram where we will have photos for you to take a look at. Crimeaholics, as always, be aware and take care.